let's go. Man, welcome friends in the room. Gosh, I feel like we could go home, that worship set. Man, and I'm sure it was the same in Fort Worth with Jared and, and in Houston and, and just everywhere. But welcome friends, we are kicking off a new series tonight, The Remnant. What is The Remnant? Uh, it is not the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and the bear. It is a word that means the people of God or the people that God has set apart, the faithful ones. So I'm gonna start with a little bit of a story that recently took place that'll give us some traction before we're going. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I got on a plane with JP, who also is uh, one of the primary communicators and, and leader of this uh, Dallas campus and really Watermark in general. We went to London for a gathering for young leaders, young pastors uh, that are kind of under 40. Essentially, he got invited to come to this thing and he was like, hey, you wanna go free trip to London? I'm in. And so we went over there, and, and we were together with, with about 70 other leaders from churches that were in Canada and in Australia and in Europe and in Germany and Sweden. And, um, and so it was going to be kind of a time to collaborate and get to know and, and exchange ideas and just hear what, what their ministry contexts are, are looking like. And, and I don't know what you know about Europe, but if you hear any of the news and any of the news clippings that are out there, it's essentially that uh, the church, uh, you don't always hear a bright picture painted. That it's almost like, hey, whatever is going on there, it's not church inside of Europe. That it's either losing or it honestly already lost that battle long ago. And so the vibrant ministries really uh, are nothing like you're going to see inside of America. So I was going over there thinking, man, I I don't know what this is going to look like. And I'm sure we're going to meet with pastors who live in a very different context than Dallas in the Bible Belt. And, uh, And so maybe it'll just be a chance we encourage them and and, um, and almost, I was almost like, it may even be kind of awkward to talk about what God is doing here in the midst of it, because if, if it's in Sweden and just the high atheist, agnostic population all over Europe, uh, it, it's going to be maybe our chance to just encourage them and be like, man, here's why you matter. Keep going. Keep getting after it. Because um, if I'm them, or I'm already thinking in my mind, man, if I'm leading in Germany or in Sweden or Australia or Canada, I, I might be thinking, like, I haven't seen people come to trust in Jesus or come to trust Christ in a long time. My ministry is, you know, just a, a few people versus a few thousand. And, and so all this is kind of going through my mind. Of, it'll just, I guess, be a chance for us to kind of encourage and keep going and, and let us remind you why you matter. I'm going to pick up that story and a little bit of what took place. But I start there because what we're going to kick off this series with is looking at Jesus' words, what he would say to those pastors and those leaders, and really to anyone who is a follower of Christ, anyone who is a part of the remnant, anyone who is a Christian. Not that they claim to be a Christian, but anyone who is actually following Jesus or a follower of Jesus. What Jesus is going to say to you, if that fits your description, why you matter. Just like I assumed we're going to go over there and have a chance to remind them, hey, as you, as the presence of God in Sweden, here's why you matter. Here's what God is doing. Tonight, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus, if you could speak to the body of Christ, he essentially does at that time and says, as my followers, here's why you matter to the world around us. And I don't know if you've ever thought of that question before. Maybe to you, you're like, yeah, duh, you know, it matters. It gives me something to do on a Tuesday night. But if you really were honest and you begin to think, like, does Christianity really matter? Like, if, if you removed all of the Christians off the entire face of the planet and they all of a sudden just poof, disappeared, would it really make that big of a difference? Like, would things look a ton different? Would it turn into Lord of the Flies and everyone's got Piggy's head on a stick and, and things are just going crazy? If you guys would have read that book in eighth grade, that would have been funny, okay? Uh, <laughs> 
cliff notes. And so is it, would it turn into that? What would happen? What, what if you actually remove the people of God? I mean, think about it. And maybe you have an answer. Maybe, maybe you're not really in a whole church thing and somebody just invited you and you're like, yeah, finally get off my case. I'll come with you to this porch thing. And you think, man, if, if you got rid of all the Christians, I'm not even sure the world would look any better. Or I mean, any worse. It may look even better. Be less judgment, less uh, you know, hypocrisy. Maybe that's what you think. But regardless of where you're on the spectrum, I mean, think about it. If you removed all of the Christian presence in this age, maybe throughout history, how would it change our world? How would it look different? And the answer is found really and tied to what Jesus says the role of his followers has plays, will always play in every culture, in every society, on every continent, in every place, in every age. That he's gonna tell us why the body of Christ Christ followers are so crucial to our world. And if you were to remove them or when their presence is removed from a place, what will happen? So we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five. If you have a Bible, you can flip over to Matthew chapter five. We're gonna look at a passage that you may have heard before. You may have uh, heard even talked on before, but we're gonna see Jesus's words to his followers about why they matter. Tonight, we're gonna kick off about why God always preserves a remnant that he's always preserved a people, set aside a people, faithful and devoted to him in every age and really in every place all over the world. And we're gonna see that starting in verse 13. This is Jesus's first message uh, to really anyone that we know of. And it's called uh, often the Sermon on the Mount. If you may have heard that term before, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, he basically gathers on the side of a mountain or a mount and he looks out into his followers and he begins to say, here's why you matter to the world. And we're gonna see three things that God is doing, always is doing through the remnant, was then and is now. And if you're a part of the remnant, this is what he's doing and wants to do through your life and through my life. Starting in verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus, what are you saying? We're a condiment? Why are are your followers salt? And what does that even mean? And what do you mean by trampling underfoot? That doesn't sound great, whatever you mean by it. Here's here's what the context around salt in Jesus' age. Very different time period. Um, We'd have to, if we go back on a time machine, here's one thing that we would notice about first century, that they didn't have something called refrigeration. And so inside of that context, because there was no electricity, there's no ability to freeze food. You didn't have like ice makers and ice machines. I know, I, I went to seminary. This is graduate level stuff. And so inside of that context, in order to, to keep food from going bad, in order to stop it from decaying, they would use salt. That salt was this preservative. So in other words, hey, you killed the calf. We got two options. We're either going to go big time barbecue right now and fill ourselves up, or we can keep the meat from rotting as quickly by putting salt on top of it. Salt was primarily a preservative. It was extremely valuable. In fact, even if uh, you look at the tracing of the word salary, it comes from salt. Salt, because they would pay people in salt because of the enormous value that it had, that it was this preservative and the ability to preserve food. And Jesus looks into his audience and says, you are like the preservative of a world that is rotting and decaying. The world is gonna decay slower with your presence there, your city, your state, the places you live, your job, the uh, uh, apartment complex you live in is gonna decay slower if there's Christian Christ-following people that are present there. The first idea from the text is that the remnant 
is the preservative of the world or the remnant always preserves our world. What does Jesus mean by the fact that, well, hey, if it loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything but to be trampled? I mean, can salt even lose its saltiness? How does that happen? What is he saying? Here's what the process for getting salt in the first century, and this maybe will make sense to you if you've read this verse and wondered what does that mean before. Oftentimes, the way salt was accumulated or the way that they got salt was because they lived right next to the ocean. They would go and they would pick up seaweed and they'd pick up all kinds of different uh, minerals and salt things that would accumulate on the shores and they would bring them in and there would be salt in the mix of seaweed and the mix of sticks and different things that were there and they would take that salt that had accumulated from the ocean, salt water, and they would rub it on meat and they would rub it on the foods that they were trying to preserve. Then when all the salt is off of there, they would take it and they would throw it on the top of their thatched roof homes where people would walk. And so, I mean, if you read it uh, with that in mind, it makes perfect sense what Jesus is saying. Hey, if salt is no longer something that it's providing and preserving anymore, it's something that you're gonna just throw out is essentially his point. And he's saying, you as the people of God, have been put where you are to be a preservative to the world around you, to stop it from decaying. Now, what does that even mean, Jesus? How are we stopping the world from decaying? It's not like, you know, you leave these doors and all of a sudden it smells terrible because it's like rotten food everywhere. What are you saying? The picture Jesus and the Bible presents is that our world is fractured and broken in every way imaginable. Human nature is fractioned and broken. That the world around us is broken. And that God has put Christians and Christ followers on the planet to slow down through the way that they live their life, through the values that they hold to, through the perspectives that they have on things to slow down the decay of culture and of our world. Here's what I mean. It is the Christian message that is not just one of eternal life, The Christian message, and this is so huge, even if you're not a believer, this will finally bring some sense, and you may not even be able to fully um, grab onto what I'm saying because you've been so indoctrinated by a Christian worldview and you don't even realize it. It is the Christian message that gives not just the message of eternal life, but of a better life in this world. And if you take away the message of the body of Christ and the message of Christianity, if you would remove it from history, You're gonna remove things that have uniquely been introduced through the church. Here's one example. The idea of the uh, sanctity of life, that every person matters. Every life matters. Every person, whether they're uh, uh, white, black, Asian, or anything across the board, whatever the color of your skin, whatever your, uh, your sex, male or female, that you matter. You are someone who matters to God and you should matter to me. That is a uniquely Christian message. And you may be going, well, I know atheists that hold on to that message because they have grown up in an environment where that Christian moral foundation was introduced to them. How do I know that's true? If you look around, if you've traveled it all outside of the West, it becomes very apparent that not everyone thinks like us. Have you noticed that? Like, there's a reason why uh, even the idea of, hey, men and women are equal. Even me saying that is kind of making some of you being like, yeah, why do you even have to say that? Duh, men and women are, we're out of here right now. Even me introducing that makes you kind of be like, of course, that's not something universally accepted. There's a reason Saudi Arabia just in the past few months gave women the right to drive cars. And you look all over the world, especially in places where there hasn't been a Christian moral foundation and the value of life is not a universally accepted thing. There's a reason why there's 100 million more men in Asia than women. You know why? Selective birth abortion. If we find out it's a girl, we kill it because not all lives are equal. 
And you're like, man, they are. That's because you have been so saturated in a Christian moral foundation. And we hold that it's true and it's right and it's the only way to think. But it is not a universally, it's not natural. It's not the way that people naturally and normally think. The idea that, man, abortion in general is not a solution to problems. The idea that, hey, men should cherish their wives and care for them is not a universally accepted truth that, hey, men, you should die to yourself and put the needs of your wife before her. And anytime you fail to do that, you should ask for forgiveness and you should own it and confess that that was not right. That's not something that universally people agree to and believe. These are Christian things that the message of Christianity has introduced, not just how you can have eternal life, but a better life inside of our world, and it is not natural. The Christian message introduced the idea that, hey, uh, man, you should forgive because you've been forgiven. What's natural is an eye for an eye. If you stole from me, I get to steal from you. I mean, that's what the natural is, but the Christian message has all throughout time and even today introduces something different. That's why it's the preservative of a world that apart from it having the message of Jesus and the body of Christ is decaying and will decay faster and faster. That these things, I mean, think about, think about this. Think if you removed all of the Christian presence throughout history, just like imagine with me. Imagine like, hey, um, you, were, you could wave a magic wand and poof, it all disappeared. There was never any Christianity, no Christ. Think how different our world would be. What would have happened to slavery? And you may be going, wait a second, you know, but Christians, you know, in, in the name of uh, Christianity defended slavery. There's always been phony Christians and people who missed the mark, people who didn't understand. But at the same time, even in that age, there were the remnant who stood up, who gave their life saying slavery is wrong. You could trace it hundreds and hundreds of years back where the body of Christ is saying this is abhorrent. And the greatest evil inside of our land was fought by Christians. William Wilberforce, John Wesley, people who said this is not okay. That every person is created equal in God's eyes. And in the name of the message of Christianity, they fought. Because here's what's crazy. I don't very often disagree with the founding fathers of the United States because I'm an American. These colors don't run. And, uh, but here's, here's where they had it off. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They were wrong. They're not self-evident truths. You can turn on any, any TV. Slavery is alive and well outside of nations or in lots of places that have no Christian moral foundation that's a part of it. In fact, in 2003, it was reinstated by someone who's uh, had significant leadership in the Islamic world that, hey, we're going to open back the policy for slavery. It'll always be a part of Islam. And that doesn't universally accept, and that has nothing to do with inside of our context. But point being, that perspective that everyone is created equal is not a self-evident truth. How do Christians slow the decay of our world by introducing not just the message of eternal life, but of a better life? You look at the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. You know what his job was before he became uh, a man who turned the world upside down for the good? A pastor who was turning up his congregation upside down for the good and through the message of Christ. That in every era, if you were to remove the Christian presence, how would our world look different? How would things be different? In other words, you can even look around and see it in the examples of, of hospitals. I mean, there's a reason why you don't see, hey, First Atheist Medical Center over there, but you see Presbyterian, you see Baylor, you see, I mean, it's true. 
Because the people of God, the remnant, has always said, we're gonna provide health and healing and medicine for people, even if they can't afford it. You don't hear about the, uh, you hear about Salvation Army, you don't hear about the agnostic army that's going out there ringing bells. That just doesn't happen because the people of God have introduced into this world, we think every person matters. We see it as our responsibility to fight poverty. Not some governments, the body of Christ. We see it as our responsibility to fight injustice and to use our democratic voice to fight for justice anytime that we can. But that's the remnant, that's the people of God. If you remove that, you remove God's greatest gift to the world that I'm gonna slow the decay through you. Does the body of Christ matter? You matter more than you could possibly even understand. You've mattered to history, you've mattered to this country, you matter to our world as every person in the body of Christ does everywhere. Billy Graham, who fought alongside of Martin Luther King Jr. to increase the civil rights presence, who said at my tent revivals, when it was illegal because of Jim Crow, I will not allow segregation. And he personally would go up and down the aisle saying, we're gonna sit everyone together if you're gonna be here. It is the body of Christ. Have they gotten it perfect at all times? No. And the best thing we can do is own the places where we've missed it in every century but it is the people of God who have been devoted to the values that scripture gives, that there's a God who loves every person and it is our responsibility, love and care for every person. And Jesus looks at his followers and says, man, you slow the decay of our world. You, Christian, are the salt of, your, of the village apartments. You're the salt of of whatever place that you live, off of Oaklawn or off of McKinney Avenue or wherever you live, whatever home that you're in, you are the salt of that neighborhood. You're the salt of your work. You're the preservative of that workplace. That God looks and he says, yeah, placing you there. There was a writer for the London Times who actually wrote, and uh, and London Times is kind of like the New York Times, only in London. And uh, and he wrote about just how his observations, he said, I'm an atheist, but man, I, I'm a field reporter in Africa. He was stationed in Africa and he would write and just said, man, I can't get over the ways that that Christianity is at work here. And honestly, I'm an atheist, but we need more missionaries to come to Africa because they are the ones who are bringing healing. Here's what he wrote inside of the London Times uh, in 2010. As an atheist, this is Matthew Paris from the London Times. I truly believe that Africa needs God. This confounds, I love this. This confounds my ideological beliefs as in like, I I don't know what to do with this, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there's no God. Though an atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. In other words, like, hey, when uh, government involvement just tries to provide the aid, it, it doesn't work the same as Christian evangelism does. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. Dude. And the change is good. Preach. Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist or atheist could see a mission hospital and school and say, the world would be better without it. Missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem. What Matthew identifies is really the truth that didn't have 
to exclusively do with Africa. They're the solution to America's biggest problem. Followers of Jesus who walk and follow him, not just people who claim to be a Christian. There's a lot of people in this room who claim to be a Christian, and they're not followers of Christ. By that, they just mean, like, I'm not Buddhist, and I'm not Islam, and and I'm an American. Colors don't run again. That's what a Christian is, right? But they're not followers of Jesus who are following him with their life, who have accepted him and his death and resurrection as the payment for their sin. That's a follower of Christ. And what Africa needs more of, what our world needs more of, and what Jesus says his body provides is the preservative to a world that is dying without it. They introduce the world to the message of eternal life and also a better life. And Jesus continues and he says, not only are you salt, he goes into another word picture and he says this, you are the light of the world. A town that's built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house, that people would put houses on the side of a hill so that travelers, when it was dark outside, because, again, no electricity, uh, they would see off in the distance the city lit up. And then he goes into another illustration of, like, in the same way that people don't just light a lamp and they don't put it in kind of random places, they put it very intentionally in the place, that's what God has done with his lights. And if you're a follower of Christ, that's who you are. Here's, here's what's relevant to the context. Inside of the first century, uh, they didn't have lots of lights. Like lights were a really valuable thing. So you had a candle and it was expensive and oil. And so you, you'd have really one room houses. Uh, and so people would live in one room, and, which had to be great with like mom and dad being right there. And, and so they would be in that room and they would have one lamp, usually speaking. And they wouldn't put that lamp. And so Jesus' audience is listening going like, yeah, of course you wouldn't put it underneath the bowl. Lamps were really expensive. You would put it very intentionally in the middle of the room to give as much light to the room around it as possible. You're very purposeful with where you put your lights. And Jesus says, that's how God is with his lights. That when he looked at the world around us, he saw the followers of Jesus and he placed them into the different workplaces. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not a random accident that you work at the place that you work at. It's not a random accident that you live with the roommates you live at, that you live with the neighbors around you that you live at, that Jesus says, God doesn't put lights without purpose. He puts them purposefully into the places that he's had. And here's why this is hard, because I think most of us look at it and we're like, dude, it's not, it's just random why I work at the place that I work at. I don't even want to work at the place that I work at. I'm kind of waiting to get out of this job, and it's just kind of an in-between Starbucks kind of role, or I ended up getting hired here because my aunt was like, hey, you should really consider working here. It'll be good for the resume, and I don't want to be here. And uh, it just seems random to us, or I had a connection through a family friend, and Jesus would say, It may seem random to you. My God doesn't put lights in random places. And he has placed you very purposefully that you would be the light of your office, that you would be the light of RISD, that school room that you get to go in, that you would be the light of every place you go. And here's, uh, oftentimes people will come down front and when we're along the conversation of job, um, people will say something over and over and they'll go, Man, I just need advice. I'm thinking about leaving my job. I mean, it's just, it's really dark. And by dark, they just mean there's not a lot of other Christians there. It's really dark, and, you know, I, I just don't know what to do with my boss. Just like the language and the way that he talks about women, it just makes me uncomfortable. And, and um, you know, they ask me to do things. I, I, I'm just thinking about leaving. Maybe I'll go into ministry. I, I, I'm thinking this may not be right for me. It's just too dark of a place. God has a light there. 
I mean, that's why you're there. In other words, our temptation is look at it and be like, man, it's just too dark out here. God has his people there. That's why you're in that job. What the body of Christ candidly needs is not uh, everyone to come into full-time ministry. It needs more people to go into the darkest places that are out there, more people to go into, uh, to work for AT&T, to become doctors, to go into the legal field, to go and to be lights all over those different places. And if you work and you find yourself in a dark environment, you're probably exactly where God wants you to be. And he's put his light there into the midst of darkness. He's put you. You will step into offices tomorrow. You'll step into places tomorrow that, um, that candidly I can't get into. I mean, God has uniquely given you opportunities to shine and to be a light instead of this. I mean, think about it. There's places where I've been to. I, I, I don't know if you've traveled internationally. I've been to Africa. I spent a summer in Africa. I've been to Brazil. I've been to Haiti. I've been to Mexico. I've been to uh, Europe. All of those places I could get into with just enough cash and just a plane ticket. I could not get into the school board room that you work at without them being like, all right, someone call security. There's someone here. I couldn't get into the office that you work at. I can't get into the meetings that you're gonna be in tomorrow. And God, whether you even believe me or not, which I think it's gonna be really hard for you to, is saying, I have put lights there into that darkness that I hope will shine because I'm a God, our second point, who places people on purpose. The remnant is always placed purposefully. The remnant, the people of God are always placed purposefully. I think about, uh, there's a girl that, that uh, volunteers with us and has served with us for a while, and I called yesterday to make sure the details of this story were correct, and really there's tons of these stories that are like this, but her name was Liz, and, uh, and Liz was working uh, uh, downtown. She had a job, and um, she had all of a sudden a new girl at her job show up named Sierra, and uh, Liz was a follower of Jesus. She was serving at the port. She, was, she had recently experienced like just Christ came into her life and, and was changing her life. So she's at work and she's talking about her faith and, and one day she strikes up a conversation with the new girl, Sierra. She says, hey, you know, uh, can I tell you a little bit of my story and goes through her story and invites her to come to the porch and she says, really, Sierra just kind of gave me like the cold shoulder. She wasn't interested, didn't want to have any of it. Um, that, that's not for me. And, um, and so Liz kind of went about her business, continued to care and initiate and just invite and uh, take an interest to be a light towards Sierra and really nothing was happening or she wouldn't have any of it. And Sierra at that time was living with her boyfriend and, and finally they kind of go through a breakup and she just found herself, Sierra, hitting a, a, a rock bottom of sorts, if you will, and found herself going, man, everything that I thought was going one direction ended up falling apart. And she ended up having a one night stand and something about that one night stand with some dude, just like God grabbed her heart and was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And it softened her enough to be like, fine, I'll come with you, Liz, to church. I, you know, I was raised Catholic. I'll go back and see if anything's changed. And, uh, and so she went and she finally came. She came and she sat in the back here and, and she would tell her story and she'd be like, and I listened to the sermons and I was like, oh my gosh, this is just terrible. They don't even know what they're talking about up here because she had no idea. She'd never heard the gospel before. It almost sounded too good to be true. And Liz kept initiating and, and uh, taking an interest in Sierra and after a few more occasions, Sierra came to a place where she's like, I believe that. And she trusted in Christ. She came to the place where she said, I am trusting that Jesus on the cross died for my sin. He paid for everything in my past, everything in my present, everything broken with me. And he died in my place and he rose again. And she came to a place where she trusted in that. And all of a sudden her life began to change 
kind of moment by moment, day by day, it began to change. And not long after that, here's what happened. Liz, gosh, I love this story. Liz uh, was interviewing for a job, another position at another place, and, and she got accepted. And so she goes to Sierra and just says, man, hey, I got I'm, I'm, this new job that I'm moving into. And, and uh, the way that she would retell the story would be, man, as I was saying kind of goodbye, we were in the parking lot and Sierra looked at me and we both had tears in our eyes and she just said, man, God had you here for me. There's only a handful of months of overlap where you were trying to get out of here and leave this job and I had just come in, but God had you long enough here on purpose so that I would get to spend eternity with him and get to experience the abundant life with him in this life that you were here for me. Sierra has no idea how true that was because my God places people on purpose and the God who's there has placed you on purpose so that you would get to be a light for him and the people around you, if they could use the words, they don't even know it because they're not believers, but if the spirit of God ever gets a hold of them, they may have the same reaction of like, you were here for me. You're here for me, your boss, the people underneath you, the people that work alongside of you. Because God has placed you there purposefully. What is convicting just about this idea of a light is, um, man, there's a lot of people who could teach or preach a message on stage right now. There's not a lot of people who have the same neighbors that live on either side of them as me. Like at the end of the day, what it looks like for me to be a light is not to preach a sermon. Honestly, preaching sermons are way easier than striking up a conversation with somebody about Jesus. And trying to do it in a way that is, is um, caring and sensitive and just uh, gets to know them or takes advantage of the opportunity. But that's what it looks like for me to be faithful, just like it looks like for you. Not to preach some message, but to be a light in the places that God has placed me, just like he's placed you. And Jesus continues and he really points out the third idea of what the remnant always is doing and God is doing through them. And he says this. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify or bring honor, attribute honor to your Father who's in heaven. That he doesn't say, hey, in the same way, let your light shine so that people would see your church attendance and be like, man, that's awesome, great, good job, so that people would see your actions as a Christ follower and it would lead them to see how your faith is impacting your life that Jesus gives us our third idea from the text, that the remnant always points people to God, not through their church attendance or through the number of Bible verses that they have memorized, but through the way that they act, through their actions. That's what good deeds is. That God has placed you and I in the places that we are, and he says the way that people are gonna connect uh, with their heavenly father is not by the church going around into the world and culture and being like, you need to stop and trying to correct their behavior. That the role of the church is not for us to go around and correct, it is to go around and try to connect with people and allow our actions to be ones that help them connect with their heavenly father who is there. The remnant always points people to God. This is the way that Jesus builds his church, through people who live lives that contrast to the world around them. You know this? Like, this is the way he's always built the church. This is the way the future of the church, the church in 10 years that doesn't even exist right now, they're not on the porch on a Tuesday night, they're in a bar somewhere right now. Uh, the church has always been built through the body of Christ living out their faith, through their actions. 
And those actions end up causing curiosity in the world around us. They contrast like light and darkness. They contrast the darkness of the world with the light of their actions. And it does something like it draws people to God. This is the way that God's always built the church. In other words, uh, the way that people typically trust in Christ is by first trusting a Christian. If we were to get everyone up here inside of the room, like think about it. Like generally speaking, if you were to tell your story, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, if you ever heard someone tell about kind of their story, it usually involves, um, hey, and then I met him. And he asked me, he was just a friend that was on my sports team. He was a friend that I worked with. And he just asked if I had a faith or he, he took uh, uh, me to his church one day or he invited me to come to this Bible study. People, generally speaking, talk about trusting a Christian before they ever trust in Christ. Having someone inside of their life that they're willing to go, oh yeah, hey, I'll come with you to that because they trust them. The way that God builds his church is through his church. The way that God uh, has historically, the way that your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, has been changed was that at some point there was a follower of Jesus that you intersected paths with. And if you were to tell your story, you would say, and then I met her. That typically speaking, the way people trust in Christ is by first trusting in a Christian whose actions point people to God whose actions are a part of inviting them to the God who's extended the invitation to the world around us. And this is why I think the actions, um, this is why it is, it's a really dangerous thing for people who are not following Jesus to claim to be a Christian. Like there's some of you inside of the room that your actions are not pointing people to Jesus. They're pointing people to the bar. They're pointing people to the club. I don't know what they're pointing to, but they're not pointing to, man, I have this new life inside of Christ. You've got one foot in the world, we would say, and one foot in the church, and it's making you so you can't enjoy either of them, and you're not good at either of them. You've got just enough Jesus to to want to go to heaven, but enough of him to kind of spoil your fun inside of the world, and you, by your actions, are confusing people. If you're someone inside of the room who's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it doesn't affect how you date, it doesn't affect how you use your time, it doesn't affect how you use your money, it doesn't affect the way that you talk, the way that you work, it doesn't affect the way that you see the world, I wanna make an ask of you. Will you stop telling people you're a Christian? Will you stop telling people you're a follower of Christ if you're not following Jesus? I don't know why that, that feels scandalous and I can feel the air go out of the room. Did you just say, if I'm not following Jesus, stop telling people I'm not following Jesus? Yes, <laughs> you're confusing people. And you may be going, well, holier than thou art you, so I live with my boyfriend. Is it that big of a deal that I'm not following Jesus? Great, say, I'm not following Jesus in this area. Maybe just do that. That I like to follow him to church on Sunday, especially Easter, and, uh, and I, yeah. And so maybe just start there because you are confusing people. And the message of Christianity is not clean yourself up or be perfect. No, it's be open and honest about like, man, we all have imperfections that God is working through us in our lives. But if you're gonna say, I blatantly don't care what God says, stop saying you care what God says. You're confusing people and you are hurting the name of Jesus and we can golf clap all day long for that and we don't need to. But my point is this, you are hurting the name of Jesus. Hey, you're hurting the message of Christianity. You're confusing people. You're not being a preservative to our world. You're not shining light into the darkness. And it would be better for you to just say, man, am I gonna be honest and open about like, am I serious about this Jesus thing or not? And quit, quit playing the games. Church is a weird game to play. You should go to the lake on Sunday or something. 
or sleep in and go get mimosas. I think they got specials somewhere. Like that's a better use of your Sunday if you're not actually gonna follow Jesus. And you're confusing people. Tragically, and maybe you're in the room and, and you, have, you have experienced being confused by Christians. Maybe it wasn't even Christians who were kind of like giving you this weird like, yeah, dude, you, you're buzzed right now at the bar and you really want to talk about God, which is a go-to specialty for someone who is one foot in the world and one foot out. Maybe it wasn't that person that confused you. Maybe it was you grew up in, in a church that was just full of what so many churches tragically are, just hypocrisy, judgmentalism, gossip. And you were given a really poor vision of what the church is and is intended to be. I was talking to a girl last week while we were in London and, um, and she was behind us in this kind of ferry ride. We were waiting in line to get on this ferry and, and uh, she began speaking and, and she was speaking like an American. And uh, in other words, she wasn't like, hello, all right, how is you today? She was uh, speaking, <laughs> that's my British accent. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> I could keep going right now, I'm sorry. She wasn't speaking like that, she was speaking like an American. And so you're like, oh man, hey, same, same team. And uh, we beat the Redcoats, am I right? And, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, where am I going? And uh, so I, we started talking to her and she was there with her mom and she was like mid-20s and kind of uh, just kind of a, a sweet, bubbly personality. And immediately I'm like, dude, she's a follower of Jesus. I'm just kind of like got that sense. I bet she is. And so begin to ask her about her faith. She was living in Sweden with her husband at the time going to school. I'm like, for sure, follower of Jesus. She's married in her 20s, yeah. And, um, and uh, not a real popular thing to do <laughs> these days. And so get married, men, okay? And uh, see, uh, asked her, hey, do you have a faith? And, and she said, um, no, I'm really kind of agnostic. And, uh, and we began to talk about why that was. And, and she said, I grew up in a church in Nebraska, this small town, and um, everyone was hypocrites. It was like the church was so gossipy. It was kind of small town. Everyone knew and they would talk about you behind your back and just kind of like, it wasn't a place, honestly, that I ever want to be a part of and had no interest in being a part of. So when I got out of that town, I was like, man, I don't know what God they worship, but that one is not the one that I'm going to. Because the actions tragically did the opposite. So we got to share with her and ask her forgiveness that on behalf of the body of Christ, she was given a bad vision that the body of Christ was not to be a place that allows gossip. It's not to be a place that is full of hypocrites in the sense that they say, you should stop doing that and then I'm gonna go do it and claim that it's fine. It is the place that's full of broken people who come to the end of themselves and said, man, I don't need, I need a savior. I know that the world can tell me I'm a good person. I try to be good and I pay my taxes, but there's something off in me. And I find myself in need of something supernatural to help me, to save me from myself. That it's not good people in heaven and bad people in hell, it's forgiven people in heaven. And the only way to get forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. And we just shared that with her and try to do whatever we can to point her back to that truth. But tragically, it is the church or people in the name of Christianity who have done the opposite of what the remnant does, which is point people to God. And they've pointed him away from him. But the good news is this, and I'll invite the band to come back up and, and land the plane here in a second. God has always preserved a remnant who know him, who walk with him, 
and you point others to walk with him in every age and every time, every place. That story I said about going over to London and meeting these different pastors and how I expected to go in and be like, oh man, you got three people, that's great, keep it up, keep going, this is amazing. Um, dude, God had some surprises for me and some reminders of how small I can think of his work in our world being. Reminders specifically that the God who's there is not a, exclusively at work in America, He's not exclusively at work in Dallas. He's not exclusively at work. I knew he's at work. I know he's at work in Africa and in Asia where Christianity is exploding. There either is or shortly will be more Christians in Asia than there are in America, despite the fact that it's outlawed intensely. That God is all over. I knew those places he is, uh, you're seeing explosive growth happening. But inside of the West, I went in thinking, man, there's nothing going on here. And as I got to hear from different pastors there was one from Sweden. Think about this. There's one from Sweden. They recently planted a church in the last few years already in a culture with like 90% agnostic beliefs. They've got over 1,000 people coming regularly. There was another place inside of East Germany. East Germany is one of the most atheistic places on the planet. You may be familiar with the history of kind of the Berlin Wall. Remember that in communist East Germany? You know what's happening right now in the most atheist, like truly, I'm not just speaking in superlatives, other than North Korea, which we don't have the stats on because... They're North Korea. The most atheist place on the planet is East Germany. Do you know what happens every single year in East Germany? A conference of 12,000 young adults come together. Why do they come together? For a prayer conference. And they show the video at this thing. And honestly, we do this thing called Launch Retreat, which is the bomb. And it made Launch look like, oh man, we have got to up our game. It was unreal. 12,000, 12 times what we see. And then they showed us just the church that was hosting kind of this whole event and was inside of London itself where 6,000 people every single week come and they gather on these four different locations. They planted 75 churches. And you know what they said? Our vision, we're gonna see London fall to Jesus again. And then they began to talk about uh, all over just different countries inside of Europe and Australia and Canada. There was a Catholic priest who got up and he talked about God at work inside of Canada and how thousands and thousands of people are turning to Jesus. Honestly, it was like, People like you exist, I'm mind blown, because God is at work and the church remains. And whatever vision that you may have of like, man, he's just exclusively at work in Dallas or he's just exclusively in these places, the church remains and the people of God are all over these places. And one of the things that this guy from Germany said is we will see the church rise again in Europe. And that's our mission, that's what we're committed to and they're seeing it happen. You may not even be hearing of it. You may, like me, think, oh, wow, that's actually happening. It's happening in Australia. It's happening all over our world because the gates of hell will not stand against the body of Christ. And Jesus is alive and at work, and he is on the move. And the remnant, the remnant remains. What I want to close with here is just a reminder, if you're inside of the room and you wonder, do I really matter? Like, am I making a difference? Does it even matter the fact that I work at the job that I'm at? Does it matter the fact that I live in this apartment complex? Does me, when I follow Christ, is it really actually making any significant difference? Light always pushes back darkness. It always makes a different difference in darkness. And Billy, what I'm gonna have you do is if you will shut the lights down, this is just gonna be a visual representation that'll lead us into worship where I wanna ask you to just do something. If you'll join me, if you, Billy, if you'll shut lights down. I wanna just talk briefly about what the Bible says, the picture the world created or the picture of our world is that it is a world that is full of darkness. And into that darkness, Jesus said, I am preserving a people to preserve the world. And the remnant will remain and they will be 
different colors on their skin. There'll be different languages that they speak, but they will all unite around the Messiah, the Savior. And the visual image, really, if you have a phone right now, I'm gonna invite you to take it and you pull it out and just turn on your light. From heaven's perspective, this is what the message of Christianity, this is what, if you ever wonder in your life, do I really matter? Do you know what God sees when he looks down and he look around, you can just see. And this is what heaven's perspective is. I want you to think about that. That's what Jesus, at the end of the day, says, this is what the body of Christ is into a world full of darkness. I've got lights. And the gates of hell won't stand against it. And I'm going to place them purposefully wherever they are. And here's what you got to know. Every time light enters darkness, it wins. Every time. And the Savior of the world has said, I am placing my people purposefully for my kingdom, where they are, where they live, and where they work, to shine so that others would not see their light, but they would see the God who put them there. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that you are at work. Forgive just the ways that in my own mind, I can assume that, that something like seeing Europe taken for the name of Jesus is, is too great of a task. Father, would you grow our vision for the church? Would you strengthen the church in our land? Father, we pray for hundreds more churches in Dallas, Texas to be formed, to take place, that hundreds of thousands of the five million people that live in DFW would end up stepping into a church and they would step more so into a relationship with the God who loves them. We pray for Houston. We pray for Fort Worth, we pray for El Paso, we pray for uh, Cedar Rapids and Spring and the Woodlands and every place, Tulsa, where the body of Christ is gathered. I pray for friends in the room who right now are uh, filled with just a, man, they're not convinced that they're either making a difference, they're not full of hearts that wanna go and just see you take more ground in our land, more ground in the places we work, more ground in our heart. Father, would you strengthen, would you fill them with courageous faith? Would you fill my heart with courageous faith? Would you do something amazing in our midst you're the king who makes the darkness tremble. And we worship you now in song. Amen.